We are back for part two this week of my conversation with Rachel Saveda, and I, I read her whole wonderful, impressive bio on part one, so check that out if you'd like to hear it. But on this episode, we're going to dive into more of the research aspect of forming a trait team. So I hope you all love this conversation. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders and founder of the MetaSLP Collective and MetaSLP Education. This podcast is dedicated to delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere, while also recognizing that medical SLPs everywhere are doing the best with what they've got. Whether you are a new clinician seeking tangible tools for therapy or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is simple, to help you advance your practice without feeling overwhelmed or underappreciated. This means that together we'll build confidence, broaden your knowledge, and reignite your passion for our field. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride and be open to new ideas because at the end of the day, you and your patients deserve that kind of support. With that, let's dive in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Did you guys have any sort of like... You said that the team obviously makes a big difference. And I know we've heard that before on, on other podcasts. Did you have like one specific respiratory therapist or one specific surgeon that was sort of like your like champion that, that really clung on to all yeah. of us? Yeah. Yeah. So we did. And I actually did a lot of research into like the dynamics of the team and like designs and there's different designs. Um, like I mentioned, John Hopkins has a design. There's another model called the trams model. Um, and it just depends on what your hospital services. So like a lot of, for example, head and neck cancer hospitals, you're going to need an ear, nose and throat doctor on your team or an ENT. Um, in my facility, it's very trauma burn driven. So I knew that my champion surgeon needed to be a trauma or burn surgeon because they're the ones doing the largest volumes of tracheostomies, but they're also the people that can get me the most buy-in from everyone else because they're quote unquote, the Kings of the hospital. They are the champions of the hospital. So we had a champion surgeon we had a point person in the sense like a PA, a physician's assistant or a nurse practitioner who wrote like rounded in the morning and she's the one that entered all the orders. We had a point respiratory therapist. She was the supervisor. So that really helped out. Um, we had a point speech language pathologist. So that is really your driving and leading force. And that's kind of what I'm harping on is that we could lead this initiative. We could be that catalyst. We also had a, a point pulmonologist. So that was like our core team, about five or six people. And then our support staff we did was kind of your underpinning. So like maybe your rehab director, maybe your respiratory or pulmonary director that can get some things moving and grooving in those departments. You're also going to want someone that can help you collect data. So a statistician or someone in your hospital that can pull numbers for you. But really that's, you've got to have your champion and your champion's going to be your right-hand man. That's going to be your person that's going to give you the connections, help you get the buy-in, but also be the person who's going and doing the trait changes or doing the downsizes if respiratory can't or kind of pointing, not ordering, that's the wrong word, but kind of showing everyone like, this is the way it's going to go. This is how it's going to, how it's going to groove. Cool. Yep. All right. Awesome. Awesome. So talk to me about, you know, how this has, has played out for you guys. I'm so excited to I love, I love that you did this. I, I just, I love your story. I love, I love your patiently persistence, uh, your patient persistence. We can put it that way. 
Um, yeah. So tell me a little bit about some outcomes. Tell me what, how things are going. Now. So we're, we're currently in the process of like writing a manuscript. So this will all be like, this data will actually be hopefully published, but just kind of like some raw um, information. And that way you guys kind of have like an optimistic and positive outlook on this, that you can inflict change and change the culture in your facility and have positive outcomes. Just kind of looking at some outcome measures that really we haven't really noticed in any other kind of studies would be is speech consulted, right? So everyone tells me, well, Rachel, I can't get all the trachs in my hospital. Well, it's very possible. If you can create this initiative, we almost doubled our consultative rate. So if we started somewhere in the 30s and 40s, we were closer to the 70s and 80s. 80% of our trachs are being consulted. And at this point in day right now, I can tell you we have 100% of our tracheostomies in our hospital. So I think that that's your springboard and you get that consult, the, the opportunities are endless from there, right? So then if you move into okay, well, we got the consult. How can we improve time to oral diet? Okay, well, we're we're starting to work with them sooner. Let's see when we can get an instrumental done on them sooner, right? If they're already off the vent or maybe they're still on the vent, we had success increase in our oral diets, almost 25%. So that means 25% more of our patients were on an oral diet sooner. And when I mean sooner, I mean, we were able to shave almost five or six days off of that time. That's five or six days less of tube feeding. That's five or six days less of that patient suffering with an NG tube or asking to drink water and dying of thirst. So it's just tremendous, the quality of life benefit that patient received from just you simply organizing a group of people who are going to dedicate their time and focus to this population and ensure that there's no mishaps, there's no fall throughs. Um, We actually also looked at the changing of tubes, right? Were we able to take, make the tube smaller? Were we able to decannulate the tube? And we did see some percentage increases, about 20 to 30% increase on how many trachs were being changed downsized to optimize their ability to communicate and their ability to swallow, as well as did they get decannulated, right? So how many times do we see them trached and leave? We're able to see them get traked, eat, downsize, and decannulated all within the same stay. And we were able to see significant day reductions or decreases and downward trends of, again, four to five day changes. So when you look at these in retrospect, you see that hospitals see it as, oh, we're saving money because it's less days. We're seeing trends in this. But I see it from if that was my grandma or, you know, my my godfather or someone he got to eat five days sooner. He got his trach out seven days sooner. He got a speech consult on day one. He used a valve on day two. He's communicating seven days sooner than the average stat, stat that we see. So I think as a profession and a speech language pathologist, that's huge to see that we can in, impact the patient in that way. And we have a very, very strong ability to spearhead this and be the leaders in this initiative. Whereas otherwise, Oh, we'll get the consult when we get the consult. And if that means it's in seven days, other patient will just be on the vent for seven days and speech will come to them when they can. Now let's get that on the first day. Let's start working with them post-op day one or two. Yeah. So those were our outcomes. There'll be more details later once it's out. But I I love that so much. I think something else that I've been thinking about a lot lately, I had, I I worked at in the hospital a few weekends ago and I just, I had this thought and, and it's in my head a lot now. And I think just giving patients a tiny bit of motivation, right? And you're talking about like, you're getting these patients eating five or six days sooner than they were. How much more motivation does that give that patient? Like, I'm curious to see like how it affects depression or how it affects 
ICU delirium. You know, I'm curious because it's like, you know, the longer they stay in these situations, obviously the higher the chances of them them developing that happens. But people know I'm a very like woo-woo, half glass full, positive mindset all the time type person. But it got me thinking about sort of like the culture in the hospital, right? And it's like, and this happened because I was talking to two different people in the hospital and this one person told me this, 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 and this is going wrong with the patient. And this person told me this, 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 and this is going right with the patient. And I was like, that's such an interesting mindset shift, because if you go in and tell the patient, you know, all these things, but you can start eating today, or we're going to trial some foods, like how, how dang exciting and motivating is that as opposed to all these other things that are wrong with them, right? Like they know, like they know what's wrong with them. They're in, in a hospital bed with all these tubes in their yes. face. They know, right? Um, so I don't know. It's it's just a thought. And and I, obviously that's just such a side tangent, but I think the motivation and the, the intrinsic motivation for these patients to improve, I think shouldn't be overlooked by getting a lot of these outcomes so much sooner. Agreed. Agreed. And, and like kind of spiraling off that culture thing, because that was a conversation we had last week was, do you feel the culture has changed, you know, or like, what was, what was the impact of the team, right? Like putting all the data aside and, and if you're not a numbers person, or maybe the person you're speaking to, it doesn't really care about numbers. We kind of reflected on it. And when I started, it was trach and peg. Everyone got a trach and they got a peg on the same day. And that culture has drastically changed. Yes. You need a tracheostomy that is airway protection. And that is the utmost important thing, but can we wait on that peg? So that was like a really big cultural change. And now they, they realize they understand it. So they're just like, yeah, let's console speech. Let's give them a few days. This is going to be amazing. Let's see what we can do. And like, not only is that motivating to the patient, they didn't get this, you know, long-term more, more permanent source of nutrition. It gives them a motivation. Like, all right, I have this annoying thing in my nose, like let's work, let's get going. And the surgeons see the outcomes that they can eat. They can eat with a tracheostomy. They can breathe. They can communicate. They can do everything on event if given the chance and appropriate skilled intervention with the appropriate people managing and um, overseeing their care. But that was an amazing cultural shift that we all kind of like had a wow moment. We're like, yeah, you're right. Not everyone's getting trached and pegged anymore. It's one and then they wait. So that was kind of a nice aha moment too. Yeah. I love that. Talk to me a little bit about how you decided to, you know, why, why you guys decided to get involved in this research and and actually look at the outcomes and look at, yeah, look at all the data. Yeah. I kind of thought because, you know, all the literature that I was finding during my lit review was an intensivist led speech, uh, an intensivist led trach team or a surgeon led trach team. And I was like, well, Hey, this is our wheelhouse. Like yeah. we're the aerodigestive specialists. Like the first question anyone asks when you go in a room with tracheostomies, when can they eat? When can they talk? And I'm like, Hey, that's us, you know? So I felt that like, not only were we recommended members of a team from all my literature review, but like, Hey, we have a chance to be not only integral members, but like a leading or driving force to this team. Let's look at what we've done because it was working so well. And so effectively, let's just see what our numbers show. Let's like, it it just kind of came upon us to actually make it into a research because it was a quality improvement project. It really was just to see like, how could we improve or inflict change in our facility for the better for our patient outcomes? And it kind of just spiraled into, well, the data is pretty good. Let's formulate this into graphs. And we we're able to present it, you know, at surgical conferences and they, and surgeons even were like, that's amazing. Like we, most of these people just don't understand that these are outcomes that maybe even a surgeon, and I've noticed surgeons and intensivists 
don't like, don't really care to measure because it doesn't inter, um, it doesn't include them, right? They think of, I placed a trach, how soon can I get it out? I placed a trach, how long is it in for? They don't look at all the middle parts of when can they eat? When can they talk? When can we change it? Yada, yada. And that's kind of where we fit in. So I felt like it's not a, a one fit all approach, but let's use the point people that we have and speech language pathologists are that. Yeah. I love that. Or was everybody on board when you said you wanted to start this research project or talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Everyone was, I mean, we had our, we have our like meetings, our, our monthly meetings and we kind of started running the numbers. We sent it to our, to our research educator and he kind of like cleaned up the numbers and did his old data. And when we showed the numbers, they're like, we should, we should formulate this into something. And you know how conferences work, you send your preliminary data and they're like, Oh, this is interesting. Can you present on it? And I think we got a really good, we got really good feedback about it and a really good um, response from it. And everyone was really interested in it. And I, I really do hope that when it does get published and when it's finished, that it kind of motivates other speech language pathologists to try to replicate it. I really, I'm like, let's go, everyone make a team and you lead it and really see if you can replicate the results because, you know, anyone can lead the team, but if it's a specialist like us, I think that we can really make an impact. And I think that's why we went for we went forward in trying to publish it because we want to show that it's effective and that it works. Yeah. Good. Awesome. Yeah. So tell me where are you guys in the process now? You're in the process of submitting it to journals. Is that what you're doing? Or yeah. Yep. Yeah. We're, fi- we're finishing writing it and we're going to submit it off and see. I mean, everything's there. It's just kind of like the fine tuning and, and really like constructing it. So it should, I mean, if someone bites, it should be out soon. You know, you know how long it takes to edit those things and stuff. Yeah. Good. Awesome. I love that. Yeah. I think that there's always room to improve a current project. Nothing's perfect. There's always underpinnings that can be changed. But when I look in retrospect, are there things that we could do differently? Absolutely. I think that I don't, I don't want to say that maybe a bigger team would be better because I also think that the conciseness and the knit group that we have is great, but I do think there's some other players that could definitely be involved. Like in retrospect, we have a fantastic ENT that I would love to be more an integral part. And I think in other people's tracheostomy teams, that might be their point person um, for like those complicated tricks or difficult airways. I think that maybe looking at different outcome measures could be really interesting too for growth to see different types of quality metrics. Like we didn't really touch infection and I don't even know how that could be researched, but you know, there's a lot of literature on how trach- tracheostomy tubes have infectious processes and leaving that in the airway, just like a peg tube is an breeding site for infection. So I feel like there's growth there that kind of, if you're going to tie in, okay, this team is going to help reduce the length of stay, or it's going to help patient outcomes and get the trach out sooner. What's the latter? Like, what's the consequence if it stays in longer? What kind of infections are we at risk for? Or, you know, I think, look, accessing different populations. I think we have a lot of growth in the medical ICU. So we did a lot of our research on trauma and it spearheaded and it made its way to medical. But once you start hitting those medical ICUs, those cardiac ICUs, those neuro ICUs, you're hitting a different population. And some of them are a lot sicker. And when I mean a lot sicker, you have degenerative diseases, you have chronic diseases, you have cancer patients coming in. So it's, I don't want anyone to be like, well, all these outcomes are just only on trauma patients. This is just a a sample size that we took a snippet from, but it definitely has opportunity for growth in different populations that would need to be managed differently, right? Maybe we're not prioritizing 
the use or sorry, the prioritizing oral diets in a specific population per se, but maybe that population, like if we're looking at like MS patients, communication might be our more main focus. How can we amplify or improve or optimize their ability to communicate with their loved ones when we know this is a degenerative disease or if it's a lung transplant patient and they're gung-ho about eating and they're on ECMO or they're hooked up to a bunch of cannulas and ventilators, maybe that's the prime focus and they don't really want to worry about communication. So I think it's there's growth for fine-tuning your outcomes, your outcome variables, and fine-tuning like what population you want to assess and fine-tuning who's on your team. So there's like the growth opportunities that anyone can make a team for any population with any kind of outcome variables. I think there's endless growth with this tracheostomy team initiative. Yeah, I love that. And I think that was one of the things that I meant to say when you were talking about the different outcomes that you guys had, I was thinking of what are sort of the bad outcomes that you guys are no longer seeing or you've, you've minimized, you know, and I think that's I hate to say that sort of like speaks to the choir a lot more than some of these other things, but they truly do. You know, I mean, we have infection control teams. That's a huge thing, right? Like, and I think sometimes that number speaks more profoundly than, oh, we can get them to eat a day or two sooner, even though that's what's important to the patient and family, to some of these other committees within the hospital, those are the numbers and things that they want to hear. Agreed. You got to look at the pitfalls and the negatives in order to make room for the positive. So they got to see the bad stuff first. You got to get all of the, what is it? All of the ghosts out of the, what is that saying? All of the, the skeletons out of the closet, all the skeletons out of the closet first, get all the bad stuff, lay it out. This is what we're not doing correctly. This is the outcomes. Now let's inflict change. So that was definitely our mindset. Yeah. Cool. I love that. So my takeaway, even though like our research is done, like obviously the initiative is continuing and it's spreading and it's infectious at this point. And everyone's so passionate about trachs. I think that focusing on improving the population's care, but also formulating the teams in other facilities or even like smaller hospitals. Like I thought about this other day that maybe you're not in an acute care setting. Maybe you're in a skilled nursing facility or you're in an LTAC. So I kind of want this to speak volumes that it can be done in any setting with the right people, like we mentioned in the right uh, population, but also the passion, those underpinnings. I truly believe that it's our role to drive it, to drive our force. So my mom always told me like, if you want something done right, you do it yourself. So I think that we are the perfect people to advocate for this population. And it's our chance to kind of like develop a program or an initiative to ensure that our advocacy for that population isn't just for speech and language and dysphagia. It can also spread to improving a patient's quality of life from the day that they're trached to the day that they're decannulated. Like it doesn't just stop now because they're decannulated maybe their quality of life, maybe they're not at their baseline diet, maybe they're not communicating the way that they want to. So my tracheostomy team is not just an initiative for the acute care setting. It's kind of like a mindset. And the mission statement was just to provide optimal care for the population by streamlining processes, but really always keeping in mind that it's patient-centered and it's patients first. And we want to drive the force off of what the patient wants. And we are that con- the continuity and care, speech language pathologists, we care for our patients. We see them almost every day or three times a week, whatever your frequency is. They may have a different surgeon tomorrow. They may have a different respiratory therapist tomorrow or a different PT tomorrow or a different nurse tomorrow. But for the most part, speech language pathologists are their continuity of care. So I feel like it's kind of our right and it's our ambition to try to drive the force and, and call it our own if we can. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. So, so talk to me. I, I know you're a lover of research as am I, and you've 
you know, dumped binders and binders of research on people's doors. What are some of your, like your game changing articles, your go-to articles that you would suggest people have to read? Yeah. I mean, I have a whole folder of them. So so picking two of them was really hard and they're like labeled like passing year, tracheostomy. So um, my first one was Pandian et al. 2012. So it's the multidisciplinary team approach in the management of tracheostomy patients. So a little bit older, you know, it's a little bit, it's about 10 years old. And they say that you want to find literature that's in that 10, 10 year span. So it's going on 11. Um, and my other article was Barlow et al. 2018. And that's the benefit of multidisciplinary tracheostomy teams in an acute care experience. So kind of between both of those articles, they both spoke about the team concept, one more management, and then one solely in acute care. But again, going back to what we mentioned, we are always a recommended member of the team. Um, and we're an integral team member, but those articles kind of were catalysts for me to, to show that like, well, maybe I can help throw, like I can thrust myself into that position and realize that I can create the team, but we also can lead the team. We could be that spearhead. We could be that change, right? Also within those articles, it talks a lot about education. So it talks about how it's not a one and done approach and it cont- it constantly requires follow-up education, re-education and more education to sustain the model. So that's like a big thing that I've noticed in like acute care settings or even rehab settings. Everyone's really quick to like implement processes and change, but like the real effective matter is, did you sustain the change? Did you sustain the model? Is it still effective? Is it still appropriate? Because it's medicine and medicine changes. So, so do protocols, so do processes. So staying up to date on your literature, staying up to date on the people on your team, right? Maybe we get a new surgeon next week who has a completely different approach. So we're going to have to re-educate. We're going to have to refocus and all be on the same page. And then lastly, it talked about like adding valid variables to measure and that like what hospitals love, hospitals love data. So like we said, if you can pinpoint a problem, you can pull the skeletons out of the closet. You got to, if you're going to bring a problem, you need to bring a solution. So you're telling them we have suboptimal tracheostomy care. They're going to ask, what do you mean? Where is it? Okay. In X, Y, and Z variables, this is how I went about measuring it, but here's my solution. This is how I want to tackle it. They don't want to know about the problems unless you have a solution. So then they know, okay, she wants to tackle it. Now we're going to actually start making a difference. Now we're actually going to start implementing change because we've laid it out. We found the problem and there's an actual mode or catalyst and method to sustain and inflict change. Yeah. Yeah. Those are my sales. Are great. I love those. I love it. I love it. I love it so much, Rachel. Yay. Did we cover everything? Any final thoughts about anything? No, that was great. I mean, we definitely talked about it. We harpered on it. I think, I hope that people get bite this and they get excited and passionate about it and want to go do one at their hospital because it's so fun. I think it's so fun to go to work every day and be passionate about not only what you do, but like the implementation of the processes that you're doing. And you're really affecting change. You're creating and changing cultures. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's funny you say that I had a call right before you and it was a grad student doing a, doing a research project on people that work in settings that she wants to work in. And so she wants to work with swallowing disorders, but she's, she's interviewing people about what they wish they knew or what they wish that they had more training on or things earlier. And I said, you know, I think my, takeaway is going to be a little bit different than what you've probably gotten from other people, but it's something that's so, it, it, it affects everything in the way that hospitals, nursing homes, all all of healthcare operate. And that's, 
you have to learn to function as a team and you have to be okay with sort of checking your ego at the door and knowing that you're not the smartest person in the room ever and that there's always going to be change, right? There's always going to be new research. You're always going to get a patient that challenges you, that throws you for a loop. And so I just sort of went on this whole rant, I guess, about, you know, I wish that this was something that was talked about more is, you know, of course we learn all these technical skills and things, but being a good team player and learning how to communicate effectively with other professionals is what really drives change in these medical settings. It's true. And yeah, she was like, I had no idea. I never would have thought of that. And I was like, good, think about it. (laughs) She's never going to forget it now. That's going to be her mindset going in there. Watch. She's going to be like, oh, that's great. It's a good, like golden nugget of knowledge. Absolutely. Yeah. Cause I think, you know, how do you, how do you affect change? You know, how do we get other departments, you know, up to date with research that affects us and them, you know, you have to be a team player to have to learn to communicate effectively with them. You can't just throw research down their throat like we want to do and yeah, that doesn't, that doesn't solve any problem. So yeah, being patiently persistent and pleasantly persistent has been a game changer for me. I'm like, no, no means no, but also like, it could mean like, maybe we can revisit this at a different time. I'm a team player. You don't want to talk about it right now. We'll talk about it later. Absolutely. That's what I always tell my daughter. No means not today. So tomorrow. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And that's the approach I take with everyone. Cause I'm like, you're not feeling it today. Okay. I'll try again tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's awesome. Awesome. All right. Any final thoughts, Rachel? Any any final thoughts you want to share with the people? No, I think that's this is great. I'm excited. This I think we hit on every I mean everything I have on my slides as I was touched on. So I think that's awesome. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much, my friend. Exactly an hour or two. No, thank you. Yeah, I appreciate you so much. This was an awesome conversation. And if if people want to learn more, where can they find you? Can they reach out to you? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. They can find me. I'm on I'm on LinkedIn, Rachel Civeda. I'm on Instagram, so Rachie the Speechy. They can reach out to me via email. Um, I mean, there's plenty of I'm on Facebook. I'm part of the collective, so I'm a mentor. So they can reach out to me that way and then ask me for my email. Uh, many ways to contact me, but the quickest would probably be on my Instagram as I'll respond to those messages probably quicker. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much, my friend. Appreciate you. Thank you. Talk to you later. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And that's a wrap for this episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. And if you'd like to download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email list so that you'll never miss another episode. If you do like what you hear, then please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or share it on social media with your friends and colleagues because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at teresarichard.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week.